morning, um, we're going to be taking a look at the seventh sign of Jesus, um, the raising of Lazarus. And, um, you know, Patsy came up earlier and spoke to us about people um, here who had been going through storms. And she talked about, you know, some, some of her, you know, some people she knew had gone, gone through the most horrific storms. And, and maybe you're here and you're going through stuff. And, and Judith shared with us about, about, about losing all hope. You know, that actually it's so easy to lose all hope in the midst of a storm. And um, here we find, at the raising of Lazarus, uh, Jesus comes across Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they are at a crisis moment in their life. They're at a crisis point. Um, you know, thankfully, I haven't had any life-threatening crises um, like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are going through. But... Um, but one crisis that I did go through some time ago is some time ago, me and my family, we went to live in China for two years. And we had some amazing adventures um, uh, traveling through East Asia and China. And, but one of our concerns were, what happens if one of us gets sick? Like, how would we, like, what sort of hospital care would we get? How would we communicate with the doctors? Because we didn't speak, you know, we only speak English and we wouldn't sp be speaking their language. What would happen if we got sick? And um, a few months into our stay in China, guess what happened? I got sick. And my stomach just stopped working. And, um, and we went to, I was, I was really sick. I knew there was something really wrong with me. And uh, we went to the hospital. And in China, they're really efficient. So they've got all the state-of-the-art equipment. And uh, so they gave me, like, CT scans. And they did all the, you know, loads of blood tests. And, but the problem was is that I couldn't communicate properly to the doctors about what the problem was. And, and I couldn't understand what they were really saying to me. And so even after all these tests and all these scans, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And, um, and so we found ourselves in a foreign country, um, unable to communicate properly, but knowing that I was sick and something wasn't right, and the doctors couldn't pinpoint what it was. And eventually, God led us to a Western doctor, and we managed to get some help. And within about a 10-minute appointment, the Western doctor said, I think you've got something called diverticulitis, which is a Western disease caused by a Western diet. So the Chinese doctors won't be familiar with it. And, and we managed to get to the, to the crux of the problem, and it wasn't life-threatening, and, and everything was fine. But I remember in that moment, that feeling of desperation, <laughs> that feeling of, I, I know something's wrong and I'm utterly helpless. I cannot change this situation. Now, as far as crises go, that was fairly minor. Um, we meet Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who were going through a major crisis in their lives. So in John 11, verse 1 and 2, it says, now a certain man was ill. There's a crisis going on. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. Remember Mary? And wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. You see, this story's about far more than Lazarus. It's also about Mary and Martha. And we're introduced to these characters that many of us are familiar to. You know, remember Mary who poured out the perfume over, um, over Jesus. Uh, and so we're reading about 
a real faith journey through a crisis point in their lives. You see, John puts faces to real people going through real issues um, in real life. Um, so we can relate. And then the next verse says, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Let's just take that first bit. So the sisters sent for Jesus. What should you do in a crisis moment? Send for Jesus. You see, they got this point right. In terms of faith journey, the sisters did exactly the right thing. If you are facing a crisis moment, a moment where everything is spinning out of control, a moment where you feel utterly powerless and helpless, where you feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the situation that you're facing, when you reach a point and you think, there's nothing that I can do in my human effort about this situation. When, when you get a cancer diagnosis, what should you do? Send for Jesus. When, you, when your marriage breaks down, what should you do? Send for Jesus. When you failed your year at university and you don't know where to turn, send for Jesus. When you're struggling with your mental health and anxiety, send for Jesus. When, when your child, your beloved son or daughter that you've, that you've brought up and they've, and they've grown up and they've moved away from you and they decide they don't want to follow Jesus, when you're heartbroken, what do you do? Send for Jesus. So Mary and Martha, they sent for Jesus. See, the emphasis here is not on our faith. You see, many times in John's gospel, we, you know, Jesus says, you know, your faith has made you well. But, but in this instance, actually, the emphasis isn't on our faith faith, the emphasis is on Jesus. Um, it's a slightly different emphasis. See, and then the next verse says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That doesn't seem to make that much sense, does it? Just, just think about it. We've got two things here. Lord, he whom you love, Mary and Martha, seems like they were mature disciples. They knew that Jesus loved Lazarus, and yet at the same time, they're trying to manage this tension because Lazarus is ill. Um, let's be totally clear. Um, sickness does not come from God. You see, God is a king, and in God's kingdom, everything happens as God wants it to happen. Um, whenever Jesus is king, um, everything happens as Jesus wants it to happen, but but unfortunately, at the moment, God does not get everything that he wants. Whoa, <laughs> hang on a minute, Kev. What do you mean God doesn't get everything he wants? Well, well actually, you know, if you, if you look at 1 Timothy 2.4, it says that, that God desires, God wants for everyone to be saved. Um, however, unless you're, a universal, unless you're a universalist, that's not going to happen. So do you see, God, God, God's saying, I want everyone to come to know me, but God doesn't always get what he wants. Last week, Josh said that, that God is in control, but he's not controlling. You see, lots of stuff happens here on this earth that God does not want to happen. Um, you know, like, you know, we're called to bring God's kingdom down here on this earth. Yeah. The implication 
is that there are lots of things that happen all around us that God doesn't want to happen because we're called to bring his kingdom, to bring his will, to bring what God wants down in a place where many things happen that God does not want. Like, like wars. Did you know God is not pro-war? God, God is pro-peace. Um, you know, war is a manifestation of hell on this earth. You know, people killing each other by violent means, like child molestation, like, like poverty, like injustice. Like, of course, God does not want any of those things to happen. Um, and the list could go on. And sickness. Sickness, an enemy of God. Um, and yet, because we live here on this earth, we've got someone who Jesus loves, but he's also ill. Um, but then the next verse says, when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Um, you know, I love this. Um, the girl, the sisters send for Jesus and then Jesus responds. I love that. Whenever we send for Jesus, Jesus responds and he responds with a word. He gives them a word. He says, this illness will not lead in death. It's okay, folks. We've got a word from God. Did you know the one thing you need today above anything else is a word from Jesus? And maybe, I say maybe, definitely, the Holy Spirit is here right now. Maybe whatever it is you're going through, maybe, maybe you're hearing right now just a prompting of the Holy Spirit saying, it's okay. You know, you're going to come through this. Hope, hope is being restored. I'm going to give you back hope. This illness does not lead to death. And in that moment, everything must have changed for them. Um, but just because we have a word from Jesus doesn't mean that everything's going to work out as we think it's going to work out. You see, like those of us, those of us here who are more mature will know that, that having a word from Jesus is not like having a magic formula. Um, it's not like, do you know, if I just say it enough and I just, you know, confess it enough. Then, and, and I just close my eyes to everything going on around me, then, then, then eventually it will happen. Um, it's not a magic formula. You see, when, when God speaks, it, you know, what he intends, what he's doing is he's revealing his heart. He's, he's saying, this is what I want to happen in this situation. And his intention then is that we would work in partnership with him to bring that word about. Um, Let's have a look at the next verse then. So it says, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Um, can you just see the emphasis here? He's, we've already said that, um, John's already said that Jesus loves Lazarus. We hear it again. Um, sometimes we need to hear that again. That Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Do you know that truth? We'll never, ever get bored or tired of hearing. We need to hear this. Um, but, you know, after the initial excitement of hearing Jesus say, this illness will not lead to death, the fact that John goes to the effort of saying again, remember Jesus loved these guys, it kind of makes me feel a little bit suspicious. 
Like, I kind of feel like John's setting us up for something here. I'm like, one, why did John feel the need to write this verse again? Um, we could have just taken it for granted. He's already said it. Um, I think John's setting us up here. I think John knows what's about to come. He knows that these guys are literally about to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That, that they're actually about to traverse some of the most difficult circumstances they've ever been through in their entire life. And John's like, do you know, I'm, I know you're about to go through this. So I just want to put one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus loves these guys. Um, whatever you have to go through. Um, you know, see, see, John, he was a man of intimacy with Jesus. And he knows that when we go through stuff like this, that the first thing we're going to hear is the whisper of the enemy saying, if you're going through this, then, then maybe God actually doesn't love you. And John says, no, you need to know. You need to know that Jesus loves you. He's for you. He's with you. He hasn't abandoned you. He loves me and he loves you. Um, so God doesn't want us to be in any doubt of his love. It's, it's like Jesus when he was about to start his ministry. Before that, he, he went for 40 days into the desert and he was going to be tested, go through some real testing times in the desert. And before that, what happened? Heaven opened and you heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and I love him. And so we read them. Verse 6 says, so. Um, that's a difficult word, you know, so. Sometimes I wish, I wish that verse 6 wasn't in there. But verse 6 says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Let's just get our heads around this a minute. This makes no sense whatsoever. Like, you know, in, in the disciples' minds, in Mary and Martha's minds, they'll know that, that Jesus is in the heyday of his ministry. He is healing people left, right, and center. Um, he's opening blind eyes. He's saving people. He's, he's doing these miraculous miracles. Um, in, probably in the forefront of their memory is, is, is maybe the incident of when the Roman centurion comes up to Jesus and says, my servant is lying sick at home. And, and Jesus doesn't even go there. He just speaks a word and he says, when you go back home, your servant will be healed. So, so, so this is at the forefront of their memory. And can you imagine what they're expecting Jesus to do? And what does Jesus do? He waits two days longer. What is going on, Jesus? Jesus, you're not acting as, I, as we would expect you to act. Maybe you're in this place right now. Maybe you're in the, Jesus, you, you, you kind of, you, you just, that, what's happening in these two days? Um, and you're doing it for everyone else. Um, and in that place, the enemy would whisper that maybe God is indifferent. Maybe he doesn't care. Well, we'll come to that later. Uh, or maybe worse, the second thing is maybe he's forgotten us. Maybe he's too busy and he's just got too many things going on and he's missed it. He's forgotten something. Like, like over the summer, um, me and Joe and the kids, we went on holiday to France. 
and we drove all the way through to the south of France and uh, we camped and we camped for a week and we had a great time um, and then we moved on to our second campsite. Now moving on to the second campsite for us when we've got three kids and um, it's 40 degrees heat, um, we've got this great big tent um, it's not just you, you, you pack away in 20 minutes, you're on your way. It takes like two hours of packing in the evening. We sleep, wake up early in the morning, spend three hours packing the car, eventually get the bike racked, bikes on the back of the car. We drive. We drive for one and a half hours. Um, you have to pay to use the French motorway, so we're paying money, you know, as we're going. Hour and a half into it, I said to Jojo, just check the directions, would you? Just check the directions to this campsite. Joe checks on my email, and she turns at me, and I can just, we've been married 16 years, I know the look on Joe's face when she's a little bit unhappy with me. She turns to me, and I, and, and I thought, I said, what's wrong? And she turns to me, she says, Kev, you are such a plonker. Uh, and, and, and she says, you've got the wrong date. And... Um, and, and it turns out that we, we, were, we should have actually stayed an extra two days, or two or three days. And so we had to turn around. And then what was even more biting is we had to pay money, you know, to, to use these motorways again. I, I, the kit, as soon as we got back, I had to put the tent up all over again. It was a disaster. But you, know, so, but you know when you've forgotten something, you've missed something. Maybe that was the same with Jesus. Maybe he just missed it. But I don't know. I just wonder, it doesn't say here, but I have a theory that I'm going to tell you later on. I, I, my theory is that I think Jesus was spending that time praying and wrestling, just like he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, and he was wrestling with the Father's will, and he was trying to discern what God wanted him to do. I believe he was doing that, and I, there's evidence in this story later on that we'll come to. Let's return, fast forward to verse 17. Verse 17 says, now, when Jesus came, so he's waited two days, and then he's finally arrived on the scene. Jesus, you're late, but better late than never, apparently. Now, Jesus came, but he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Guys, this is one day longer than Jesus was in the tomb. Lazarus had spent longer in the grave than Jesus had. Um, this isn't just a little bit late, guys. This is an absolute catastrophe. This is a disaster. We talked about losing hope. It's almost, almost as if Jesus was saying, I'm going to wait until every single ounce of hope in human effort and human, um, you know, in, in humanity, every single ounce of hope has disintegrated. I'm going to wait until that point to make my entry. You see, death is our final enemy. Um, and it is an intimidating foe. I remember when me and Joe were, were, were helping to lead in the Salford community many years ago. And um, there was a, a, a man... Uh, from Poland, and he'd been joining amongst, been, been amongst us on Sundays for a number of months, um, and he wasn't maybe wasn't much older than me, and um, and he was actually we even met his daughter, and his daughter he was getting re his daughter was getting ready to be married, and we just heard out of nowhere that um, he had a heart attack and he died, 
And uh, so this man died. And, and suddenly, we, a couple of days later, we get contact from his wife to say she'd flown over from Poland and would we meet her at the hospital, at Salford Hospital. And so me and Joe instantly think, oh, this is a pastoral situation. Um, you know, well, of course. So we went out to meet her at the hospital, imagining her to be distraught. And we thought, well, we're just going to comfort her in her grief. Well, the minute we saw her in the hospital corridor, she's pacing up and down with a Bible in her hand. And I turned to Joe, and I remember, you know, as a pastor full of faith, I remember turning to Joe and thinking, oh my goodness, Joe, this is not a pastoral situation. This woman means business. Uh, she's, you know, she's come to raise her husband from the dead. And she's called, you know, his pastors to come and join her. And, and so we went, we couldn't speak the same language, but we went into this room. And I still remember going into this room and, and Jacek, who, you know, we'd seen week in, week out on Sundays, just led there. Um, you know, and, and I remember putting his hand on him and, and he was cold. And for about 10 or 15 minutes, we, it was hard for the enormity and the finality of the situation not to overwhelm you. But we just did what we could and we spoke in tongues and... And we stood with, with his wife. And then after 10 or 15 minutes, um, suddenly you could just feel, you could just hear the tone of the prayer, the tone of the voice. We realized, hang on, we're transitioning here from praying for him to be raised from the dead to, to actually saying goodbye. And, um, but I'll never forget that moment. Just looking at Jacek and thinking, wow, death is an intimidating foe. Um, the finality of it, the enormity of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But make no mistake, guys, see, death is our enemy. And not just physical death, but the manifestations of death that we see all around us every day. But see, death is an intruder. It doesn't belong in God's world. You see, death is not a punishment from God. Death, we read in, in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That actually death is an intruder. And the only way death got into our world was when we turned our back on God. Because Jesus is life. Um, Jesus is life. And we're meant to live with him forever in life. Um, and we walked away from Jesus. And, and what is death? The absence of life. Um, so death is, is an intruder. It got into this world through the back door, um, through sin. And, you know, there's something that's even worse than physical death. What's worse than physical death? Spiritual death. Being spiritually cut off from the God who gives life to all created things. And yet that's the condition we find ourselves in. We find ourselves spiritually dead um, in our sins, um, cut off from Jesus. Um, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, you were spiritually dead. So I love it when we're singing this morning that song and we sing that death has lost its grip on me. Maybe you're in the grips of death right now. Maybe, you know, there's mental, mental illnesses going on and anxiety in you. Maybe there's addictions that you can't get out of. Maybe, maybe you're sick in your body. Maybe there's all sorts of things happening in your life. But in this moment, 
As we sang that song, death has lost its grip on me. The, the grave has no, no claim on me. We follow a roaring lion. And right now you can almost picture as Jesus enters into this situation, you can see the confrontation. You can see death standing firm. Lazarus in the grave for four days. Whatever storm, whatever crisis you're going through, standing stubbornly against Jesus. And Jesus enters into the scene. But this is no, this is no crying lamb. You see, Jesus, as he enters the scene, you can see him as the roaring lion. This is the roaring lion who's going to take on death and the grave itself. Let's see what happens, guys. You see, let's go back now to poor Mary and Martha who were trying to traverse this, trying to make sense of this. In John 11, verse 20, um, <clears throat> it says, Mary and Martha see Jesus. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would have not, been, would have not died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you asked. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. You see, Jesus here, he, he takes Mary and Martha on this amazing faith journey. First of all, um, Martha was looking backwards. Have you got the next slide? Um, Martha was looking backwards. Lord, if only you had been here. When things get tough, it's so easy for us to look backward. All the regrets we've had about the past, all the disappointments, we can reminisce about if only I might have acted differently, if only I'd have done that. I wonder what if onlys you carry in your heart. If only I'd been a better parent. If only I'd have worked harder at school. If only they hadn't have had that car crash. If only the virus hadn't have killed my grandparents. If only, if only. Martha's words echo some of the words in our own heart, in our darkness that we try to walk through. And so Jesus then responds and Jesus kind of redirects her. He redirects her from looking at the past. And he redirects her to take her, take her perspective onto the future. Just like our worship leaders did today. Said, actually, there is a hope for you. You see, if you're looking at the past, um, you've lost your hope for the future. And so Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Now, I love Martha's reaction. Like, Martha's got, a, got faith. That's a faith reaction. I know, Lord. I know that one day he will rise again from the dead. What a great reaction. She knows that the best is yet to come. Let's just say that again. The best is is yet to come. Whatever you're going through, wherever you find yourself, the best is yet to come. That's what hope is, guys. And Martha has hope. You've got to applaud Martha. She knows her stuff. She's been taught her Christian foundations really, really well. Hebrews 6 talks about 
you know, the foundations of the Christian faith, guess what's in there? The resurrection of the dead. Martha knows this. She knows, I have a hope. I have a hope. I have a hope of a future resurrection of the dead. I have a hope that one day Jesus will make all things right. I have a hope that I'm going to be part of that new creation. She has a hope. She knows that, that heaven isn't just, you know, floating away in some ethereal reality on some clouds in our spirits. She knows, she knows that, that heaven is a real place where we will be given new physical bodies and where we will enjoy the new creation with God forever and ever. It's, it's in the Nicene Creed. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. It's, it's in the songs that we sing. You know, um, a couple of years ago when, when Joe's dad um, passed away, you know, one song that, that we had such comfort from was a song called One Day by Matt Redman. Um, and, and it goes like this. It says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. One day. One day, Jesus will return and put all things right. And Martha knows this. And if it stops here, if the story stops here, then we'll have all of eternity to rejoice. Um, that you can walk out of here with such hope and expectation if it stops here. But you know the amazing thing, guys, is that it doesn't even stop there. Because Jesus then takes Martha from the future and says... These are astounding words. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, you don't actually need to wait until that future day. But right now you're looking at the person of the resurrection. And I'm walking and I'm living amongst you here in this present moment. So suddenly the hope that we have for the future can suddenly become a present day reality, says Jesus. Because I am, I am, present tense, I am the resurrection. Wow. You see, it's a bit like this. It reminds me of like in the Old Testament when the people of Israel had been promised a land for themselves. And the promised land, Canaan, represents all the promises that are yes and amen for us in Jesus. And, and we live in the overlaps of the kingdom like they did back then. We live in this reality where the kingdom has come, but the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. Jesus is not returned. And so did the Israelites. The Israelites had this promised land. And they had a hope that one day we will have a land of our own. One day that promise will come to fruition. But then what they did is they sent spies out to investigate that land. So 12 spies led by Joshua and Caleb um, investigated. And they walked through that land. And as they walked through that land, they investigated the land and they saw... That the land was good. As they walked through the land, I, I wonder if they were imagining their children and their grandchildren and generations in, ahead of them running around and playing in the fields of Canaan. And, and they looked at the fruits that was growing in the land. And it even says this, it says that, that the grapes were so big that, that they were so heavy that it took two men carrying a pole and they would hang the grapes. The, the, the fruit was so big. Um, and, and you can 
picture them tasting the grapes. They would literally taste the fruit of the future. That actually, rather than the one day we will inherit the promised land, they got to taste the promised land today. Yes, one day there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death or decay, no injustice, no poverty. But Jesus invites us to take one step further. And he says, I invite you to experience, to taste some of that fruit today. And then let's fast forward to verse 33. Verse 33 says that when Jesus saw her weeping, this is, um, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was greatly moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You know, guys, I love that Jesus doesn't just storm in at this moment and just raise Lazarus. Actually, he actually spends time, he's genuinely moved by our situations and what we're going through. He doesn't rush in in triumphalism and just say, oh, don't worry, I've got it sorted. No, he takes time to be with us in our pain and in our misery and in our darkness. It reminds me of, of, of when he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them, for they were like a sheep without shepherds. And, and then it says, verse 35, that Jesus wept. You know, if you're going to have a memory verse this week, this is a really good one. Um, the shortest verse in the Bible, uh, two words, Jesus wept. Um, you see, like, imagine, you know, that, that we live this thing out, that actually in our workplaces, in our families, in our streets, that we're surrounded by hurting people. And I find this difficult because I just wanna, I just wanna solve problems. <laughs> Someone says to me, I'm going for a hard time, I think straight away, well, how can I help? <laughs> what, what strategy can I put in place? But Jesus doesn't do this. For a moment, he, he gets down in, in there, on their level and he just says, he just, he's troubled and he weeps with them. Um, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know Jesus until I was 22. And my life was full of anxiety and addictions, but, but, but this is what changed my life. You see, one day I met a Christian who cared. I knew she cared. I could feel it. And she was genuinely interested in what I was going through. And, and through her, through her showing me that she cared, I felt Jesus showing me that he cared. And when, when she wept with me, I felt Jesus weeping with me. And that opened me up to, 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 to giving my life to Jesus. But you see, what happened in between verse 33 and 35? You see, he was deeply moved, but then something happens that causes him to break down and weep. What was it? Well, let's have a look at verse 34. It says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. There's an invitation there. What happened? They invited Jesus into their world of darkness that they were going through right then. And when we invite Jesus into our darkness, when we invite Jesus into our troubles, when we invite Jesus into our despair, there's something in Jesus that breaks. There's something that just 
that just causes Jesus to move. He can't contain himself. He can't hold in this passion that he feels for us any longer. What is it that causes it? It's the invitation that actually, Jesus, I'm going to open up my life. You know, that's what Jesus does. He steps down off his throne and he steps into our pain, our grief, our suffering, our sadness, our loss, our regret, our disappointment. And we say to him, Jesus, come and see what I'm going through. Jesus, come and see the state of this world. Jesus, come and see what I'm watching on the news today about the wars going on all over the world. Jesus, come and see for yourself the injustice that's taking place. Jesus, Come and see for yourself what's happening in our nation, in our fallen world. Come and see Jesus. And there's something so powerful in the come and see. And then, then, verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. Can you see the emotion in this, packed into this verse? Do you know God is loaded with passion for his people. He's not calm and collected. Um, He's burning with passion. He has tears streaming. He still has blood pouring out of his wounds that he carries for us. He is consumed with love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he came to the tomb and it was a cave You know, caves are places of darkness. Um, It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Why would a stone lay against it? I'll tell you why a stone would lay against it. Because it was supposed to be a permanent resting place. It was supposed to be final. That was it for Lazarus. That was the end of the story. Maybe you think you've come to the end of your story. Maybe there's a stone rolled over your cave, over your place of darkness. Maybe the enemy has whispered, that's it for you. You've had your chance. You've messed it up. Maybe you have messed it up and you're in a cave and there's a stone and you can't get out. A stone lay against it. It's supposed to be permanent. That's the enemy's plan. It's supposed to be final. The stone meant that there's no way out. Yet the next verse, Jesus says, take away the stone. When you get that cancer diagnosis, we've got people here who have been through that. Babs, Nicole, others in a cave. Final diagnosis, stone rolled over the cave. And Jesus says, take away the stone. What was supposed to be final is not the end of the story. Take away the stone. And and this is like, you know, a a signpost pointing forward to Jesus' death that was supposed to be final. And after three days, there was a stone over his cave. And what happened? That stone was rolled away. It's not the end of the story, folks. And Martha, uh, and I love this, Martha, uh, John says, this is the sister of the dead man, by the way. (laughs) Martha, the sister of the dead man, um, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be odor, for he has been dead for four days. I don't know how many scientists are here, 
But you don't need to be a scientist to know that after four days, a dead body is, is not going not gonna to smell that great. There are processes that take place. Rigor mortis. Um, I, I can only, I, I, I can empathize with Martha. God, God it's going to stink. Um, and yeah, I think this is an insight to what had been happening all that time ago when Jesus, for two days, didn't come. Well, let's just, what had been happening for those four days? Because the smell just didn't stop when they rolled the stone away. Actually, his body hadn't decayed. So actually, when Jesus was, 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 was not there with them, um, Lazarus had died. I think during that time, Jesus was praying, God... Don't let his body decay. Don't let his body decay. Protect his body, God. Um, and we see almost like an, an insight here that Jesus, he'd been at work all along. He hadn't been holding off. He hadn't forgotten. He wasn't indifferent. He'd been praying just like the Garden of Gethsemane and wrestling. And say, God, do not let your servant's body see decay. <clears throat> Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop, God. You never stop. You might not see it. You might not feel it. But God's working. Jesus is in heaven right now praying for you. Jesus is in heaven right now interceding on your behalf for whatever you're going through. And he never stops. Day and night, 24-7, he never stops before the throne of grace praying for you and interceding for you. And he's still working. The stone is not, or the stone has been rolled away. And then we get to this amazing bit when Jesus calls out to a dead person. And he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. When we're spiritually dead, when we're in that dark place, when we're cut off from God, when we think we're by ourselves. And in that place, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, people of God, child of God, son or daughter, come out of that cave. It's time for you to come out. It's time for you to come out. And then the man who died, um, <clears throat> the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. Just think about that for a second. When he came out, they'd done, he'd done the miracle. Jesus had done all that he could do. He's risen Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus is still bound. He's still got loads of thought patterns and habits and, and, and patterns of behavior that maybe he can't get out of, that he's struggling to break out of. Um, and this is like a picture of when Jesus saves us. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't do anything else. He then says, now it's over to you, my people. It's over to you, my church. It's your job to unbind him. It's your job to now let my people go. And so he empowers us as his church. He says, you know, what people around you are in caves. Um, you know, I'm calling them to come out of their cave, but now I'm giving you authority and I'm giving you power to, to unbind people um, and to let them go. And so the grave clothes go off of, come off of Lazarus um, and I can only just picture that scene. So what does faith in a crisis, faith 
in a storm look like? Let's follow Mary and Martha's example. A faith that questions and wrestles. A faith that leads us to lean closer on Jesus. A faith that encompasses our disappointments and our regrets and our letdowns and our mistakes. A faith that empowers us and enables us to move past all those things and to be the people that God has made us to be. Amen.